I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, January is the month of dietary fads. Please tell us your snack bowl's still full of strange sweet things, though, and no superfoods. Uh, yeah, so it's been very good. I've been to B&M, which is, you know, gateway to wonders. And I've got uh, I've got some... We had the Papero, the Korean stick biscuits, and I've got the uh, Glico Mikado, which are a, a Japanese equivalent, or perhaps the Papero is a Korean equivalent of the Japanese. There's probably some culture war going on between them i imagine um and strangely it says mikado and go exclamation mark on it and I, i've tried to work out why that is and i think it's because apparently the game was re- the, the the biscuit was originally designed based on that pickup sticks game so it's a biscuit you can play a game with and in these troubled times that seems like quite a good idea i've actually started to think i could buy a load of um, club biscuits and make a jenga set out of them um, but also for our half-time, I'm imagining that we have a half-time interval. I also, in B&M, got a Frey Bentos cheese and onion pie, Ooh. Um, which I was quite excited. I was quite surprised to see Frey Bentos giving a vegetarian option um, because, of course, Frey Bentos is, it was a town in um, Uruguay, which is the birthplace of Gaston Ramirez, Borough Idol. <laughs> and, but they're not, made in, they're not made in Uruguay anymore. They're now made in Scotland in a place called Fock Arbor's which sounds like the sort of thing that Russ Abbott would have shouted out while wearing a ginger wig. I don't know what, I'm, I'm sort of chuckling at the, th- at the memory of Russ Abbott. That's how desperate the lockdown is. Uh, and also on the back of the tin, <laughs> for anyone who's really interested, it says that you have to remove the lid before cooking it. And it says, we highly recommend both the Brabantia Essential line and OXO Good Grips openers. So there you are, if you're, you know... If you're getting one of these pies, make sure you've got a decent tin opener. What was that again? Oxo Good Grips Openers, was it? Yes, have you write that down? I could yes, send you I, a link. If they're interested in, in sponsoring the podcast, we, we could do it for That's a right. We, That's <laughs> Oxo Good Grips Openers. And the, I should say that the uh, Frey Bentos, is, it is Vegetarian Society approved. So there we are. So we've got that for half time. That's Frey Bentos, is it? That's Frey Bentos. Bentos. Frey Bentos. Since 1881, the leading name in tinned pies. Mm. Mm, indeed. And Harry, the idea of going to matches, perhaps to sample a pie as a fan, is once again a distant dream. Yeah, it certainly is. I, 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 the, the nearest I've got to any watching really any, any sort of football action recently was during the during the, the riots in Washington, when I noticed that when, remember that the Donald Trump supporters attacking the Capitol building, led by a man who seemed to be dressed up as Mr. Tumnus from the Chronicles of Narnia. And, but I noticed that in the crowd there was someone wearing a red and white striped shirt, football shirt. And so every time they repeated it on CNN, I was saying, is it, is it Brentford? Could it be Sunderland? 
Uh, maybe it's Paraguay, ironically. Um, but but they never took, there was no name on the back, which probably just as well, otherwise the police would be looking for, you know, Henrik Dalsgaard or somebody, wouldn't they? Um, but uh, they never turned around, so we didn't see the sponsor's name. So I've no idea whose shirt it was. Um, but if anyone does know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be excited to find out. <laughs> and you genuinely mean that, the way things are? The way things are, yes, I genuinely do, I genuinely do mean that. Even just send, in, just send in vague suggestions of red and white striped shirts. It might have been Atletico Madrid, Darko Panchev era, Red Star Belgrade, perhaps. Bad Dumouth United. <laughs> Indeed. Andy, how's Christmas and how has Lockdown 3 been for you so far? Uh, well, Christmas was okay, thank you. I got a couple, a couple of um, salted caramel flavoured related things. That's now my flavour. Is salt. Um, I obviously seem like someone who'd like a bit of salted caramel. Either that or, the, or that's all that was left in the supermarket when people were uh, getting my prezzies. One bit of local wildlife news. Um, there's a lake in a nearby park uh, where there are a pair of swans and a third one. There are now printed signs up around the lake saying if anyone sees the pair attacking the other one, they're to phone a swan sanctuary. It gives the number, and they will. It actually says they will stage a rescue. That's the the phrase they use. So, not an easy thing to do trapping a swan. I don't know if they perhaps they were swan onesies. I don't know. But I suppose they just put food down on the ground and then catch it in a big net. I mean, that's what that'd work for me. Maybe they use ox or grip handles to get hold. of Could be, yeah, or a nice bit of fray bentos. You could lure them out with that. I would have thought. Anyway, more on that as it as it develops. Obviously, I'm sure people will need to, will want to know. Um, if there is an NHS vaccination against noisy neighbours, then I think I'd be the first in the queue now. I'd have my second jab by now, probably ahead of Boris Johnson's father and Rupert Murdoch. I have a couple of teenagers who screech and shout. I think they're playing computer games or something. So I've had to, over the Christmas period, restrict myself to quietly saying, shut up, kids, but I may soon have to shout it from a balcony. Hopefully it won't get to that stage, but um, it's heading that way. We got offered an article recently, uh, WC, about why Keir Starmer is losing support in the Labour Party. The person is very persistent asking us if we consider it for WC. So I thought maybe we could publish it, but just change all the references to Keir Starmer and Labour to Frank Lampard and Chelsea. <laughs> that wouldn't be unethical, would it? I'm talking about unethical things. Finally, Harry mentioned America there. And um, there's been obviously a debate about what to call what's been happening in, in the US lately. And one suggestion I've seen is that it's only a coup if it's from the coup d'etat region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling terrorism. (laughs) Over this period, Andy, I was sad to hear of the passing of Colin Bell, but as always, it allowed for the airing of some really evocative archive footage. He seems to me a really elegant player and, of course, one of very few nicknamed after a racehorse. Yes, uh, he played his last game for England uh, when he was 29 in 1975, got a bad knee injury and didn't leave City for another three years after that, but he, he hardly played much after. I certainly could have played a, bit, a lot more international, I think, for at least another couple of years. Um, nicknamed Nijinsky, yeah, but after the horse, uh, who was in turn named after the after the ballet dancer, the horse, I guess, did it win the derby or something that period? Um, he was known, I think, I remember hearing about him for being a very fierce competitor just in general, like after he stopped playing, he, he, playing other sports later in his life and stuff and a, a bit of a demon tennis player and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, a, a player from the period, I mean, he, he sort of straddled the periods really with England in that he was in the 70 World Cup squad so the last of that England, the last good England team for a while, then was around for some of the, the, the some of the teams decline. Though he was certainly one of the better players during that uh, during that period. And of course, another player from the northeast to Newcastle and Sunderland missed out on. Mm. A big theme, Harry, isn't it? That well, well it is because of course in, in the nineteen seventy World Cup quarter final, Alf Ramsey made a substitution, which a lot of people you know considered costing them the game, and he actually took Bobby Charlton off and brought Colin Bell on. Two players who didn't play in the North East. I mean, there's a whole, particularly that era that Bell was from, um, there was this kind of, if I knew what the word diaspora was, I'd say there was a North East diaspora. Because um, the Everton team that won the title in 69-70 had Howard Kendall and Jimmy Husband. Jimmy Husband, incidentally, was a big Bob Dylan fan, I read. Um, obviously, Leeds had Big Jack and Norman Hunter. Um, the Arsenal double-winning side had George Armstrong and Ray Kennedy as Tommy Baldwin at Chelsea, Ralph Coates, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but the, the strange thing is that at the same time as that, 
the Newcastle United team that won the Fairs Cup um, had four Scots, two Welshmen, two Northern Irishmen and a Dane in it and only two players from the North East, Frank Clark and Pop Robson. And that seemed to be a bit of a feature of Newcastle's recruitment policy That because when they won the title in the 20s when Huey Gallagher was captain, I think that team had 10 Scots and a Welshman in it, no North Easterners at all. So it seemed like almost they didn't, they didn't trust local products. They wanted to import people. Like Frey Bentos. Like Frey Bentos, yeah. People, they won't be interested in the Frey Bentos. Now it's from Fock Arbors. <laughs> Have they got a football team, Fock Arbors? I'd like to hear the chant. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, most of the tributes to Bell mentioned the trio of himself, Lee and Summerby. I always like the idea of these legendary combinations, especially living so near to the Hibernian ground with its famous five stand. Do any come to mind for you? Yeah, well, um, there's a post-war England forward lineup, which apparently is the classic one um, of the first few years after the war. Tom Finney, Stanley Matthews, Rachel Carter, Wilf Mannion with Tommy Lawton as centre forward. That's what is the one apparently that England fans of a certain age, well, they'll probably be dead now actually, but we, we kind of reel off. But they never played together. <laughs> They're sometimes four of the five, but not all five because the, the selectors because the team was selected by um, silly old men in those days, and they, they kept messing about with the formation. So possibly England's best combination out of wingers, two inside forwards, and the striker never actually played together. Um, uh, Everton uh, Championship team, Howard Kendall, Harry mentioned just, there, mentioned just then, um, Colin Harvey, Howard Kendall, Alan Ball, midfield, referred to as, as the Holy Trinity. Um, Bolton scored at one point during the Sam Allardyce era, had four Danish players called Franson, Hansen, Jensen, and Johansson. <laughs> we all played together a few times. Um, of football uh, people who, who read certain football books will know that River Plate in the 1940s were the dominant team in Argentina. They had a, a famous forward line called La Maquina, the machine, who were called that in, up by journalists in 1942. But that particular group of players only played together a total of 18 times. And the term was, was applied later to other River Plate uh, forward combinations, including when Alfredo Di Stefano first played. Um Chester City's Division 4 team, 64-65, they only finished eighth, but scored 141 goals in League and Cup. Had five players, the five forwards, who each scored at least 20 goals. Um, chief among them, some I mentioned before, Gary Tolbert, who'd been a professional photographer before he became a football and went back to photography after only about six years as a, as a professional player. Man United, of course, in the, in the Colin Bell era, um, had that for, uh, Lee Best and Charlton, three uh, 1960s European footballers of the year when, within the space of five years all playing for United. But they also, in that period, a player not as well remembered, but obviously integral to him as a striker in those days was David Hurd, who was a target man centre forward in both their championship teams in 65 and 67, playing alongside Dennis Law. Not as, as widely regarded now, but clearly a very important player. For also, I should probably say, and um, we have mentioned this before, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention it, possibly the most fearsome, if not the most successful forward duo, uh, Mick Harford and Billy Whitehurst played together briefly <laughs> for Newcastle in the same division. Billy Whitehurst, I've mentioned this before, Billy Whitehurst, who played for Hull, among others, used to do bare-knuckle boxing in the summer to earn a bit of extra money and presumably to keep fit. And these days, it'd be Pilates or Zumba classes. Those days, it meant going five rounds with the you know, the baddest man in the West Riding or whatever it was, the Emperor of the Hells Angels, if they have an emperor. Um, Mick Harford, while with Wimbledon, was once sent on as a sub by Dave Bassett um, of a game they were playing against Blue Billy Whitehurst with a specific instruction to rough up Billy Whitehurst, um, which gives you some idea of how McCarford was was perceived by his by his peers. But um, they didn't work as a pairing. Maybe they just gave away too many free kicks. <laughs> and Harry, any combinations or pairings? Well, I think we were talking about uh, Colin Colin Bell's nickname of Nijinsky. I think probably the one of the greatest combinations: the Real Madrid, uh, Di Stefano, Puskas, and Hento. Um, and they, they, as well as having great football prowess, they also had a fantastic nicknames. Uh, Di Stefano began his career as the Blonde Arrow and later became the Divine Bald One. He was a big influence on Bobby Charlton, I should say, not, obviously not just in terms of football, but in terms of his kind of scalp trajectory. Um, Puskas was nicknamed the Galloping Major, El Mayor Gallo Pante, I think it might be in Spanish. Uh, whereas uh, Francesco Hento, he was a, a left winger, very, very fast and direct left winger. And he was nicknamed the Gale of the Cantabrian Sea. So I think the three together, the divine bald one, the Gale of the Cantabrian Sea and the Galloping Major. Irresistible nickname-wise. 
I should say also that, that Di Stefano appeared in quite a lot of... He had quite a, quite a life. I mean, he was kidnapped by Venezuelan revolutionaries at one point. And he also appeared in a lot of films, including his last... Just basically as himself. And his last film appearance was in 1968 in a film called La Bombalona, which uh, International Movie Database summarises as a bachelor attorney with a roving eye for beautiful women sets his sights on a young student at his next amorous conquest. Not quite sure how Alfred, Alfredo de Stefano fits into that plot line, but uh, I'll have to watch it to find out. And in these current times, I probably will. Let's hope for a British equivalent with Mick Harford as well. That's right, or Billy Whitehurst. Yeah. I bet they would be fighting. Well, I hope not literally fighting over the same parts, wouldn't they? Well, Sean, Sean Bean could play both of them. Oh, he could, couldn't he? <laughs> with a split, one of those split screen things they can do these days. Ooh. Tom Hardy in, a, in an element of the Cray films that he did, where he played both twins, he could play, he could yeah. play Whitehurst and Hartford. That's the sort of actor Tom Hardy is. I must mention the fifty thousand pound forward line of Wraith Rovers in the nineteen twenties, so called because that was what the chairman said it would take to buy them from the Kakodi Club. Almost didn't get together though, which is the point I'm mentioning them, James Bell, Miller, Jennings and Archibald, because in the summer of nineteen twenty three the Wraith Rovers squad took a corned beef boat, not made of corned beef, but <laughs> corned beef, but a boat carrying an assignment of corned beef. They were going to play some games in the Canary Islands, but the ship hit rocks off the coast of Galicia and sank. So the Wraith Rover squad nearly perished, but was rescued by locals. So that forward line, that £50,000 forward line almost didn't happen. Is that all that corned beef now resting at the bottom of the sea? Like a, a less exciting whiskey galore. Or <laughs> <laughs> beef galore. I like the idea that someone's gone down there though, with, a, with, a, with one of those diving bells. There's corn beef at the bottom of this sea. If we can just bring it up, it'd be worth a fortune. Raise the Titanic, raise the corn beef. It'll be on the stock market with 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 um, gold, platinum, silver, and and Bitcoin. That could be it. Could be one of those futures that you can buy, like orange juice and and bacon back or yeah, whatever. It is. There'll be a, a corned beef bubble that will eventually explode. <laughs> Jackpot tickets, pound a gold, draw at half time, win five hundred pounds. Yours tonight. Jackpot tickets, pound a gold, draw at half time, five hundred pound prize draw. Get your scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw at half time, £500, yours to take on tonight. And the issue 406 of When Saturday Comes is out now. It has another Tremendous letters page. Which letters did you enjoy in particular? Uh, well, there was a response to your mention, Dan, of seeing players in unfamiliar settings. Alistair Ross writes in to say that he's once in the Sainsbury's behind Shefki Kuchi, who had an entri- entire trolley full of Ferrero Rocher. As he says, not sure if he was about to film the Albanian or Finnish version of the famous advert, but I do remember I was concerned about his pre-match diet. And that reminded me of someone who wrote into us once and said they'd been in a B&Q stood behind Andrei Kanchelskis, who had a basket with several multi-packs of light bulbs, nothing else. So maybe he's planning to display his name up in lights outside his house. Um, another letter was uh, Joe McDermott, who wrote in uh, regarding recent discussions about players wearing coloured boots to say that um, he once was at a Palace Newcastle Cup tie where the only player wearing black boots was, quote, not a midfield clogger or towering centre-half, but the mercurial Sami Amiobi. Could it be, he asks, that black boots the, are the outlier these days, that only tricky wingers have the confidence to pull them off, a complete reversal of the old order of things? I think that could be true, actually. I mean, all the old certainties have, have, have gone up in smoke now, haven't they? Mm. And Harry, any that caught your eye? Well, uh, there, was a, there was a letter from uh, David Jameson of Whitley Bay, in which, amongst other things, he asks at the end... Um, the exact age at which falling over becomes having a fall, <laughs> which I sort of do remember because I was with Andy and another friend of ours, Paul Harvey, at Ashington once years ago, 
And when we came out, the terrace at Ashington was very badly lit. We went in the clubhouse after the game. And then when we came out, we were walking on the edge of the terrace and I actually stumbled and fell over. And I realised that I'd reached an age where falling over, Andy and Paul didn't just burst out laughing. They rushed over. <laughs> they rushed over kindly and said, are you all right? Don't don't move suddenly. Just just wait a while. And I, I realised you know, this is the age I've come to when, when I fall over, I get concerned rather than scorn. And I, I felt quite sad, really. But anyway, and that's an that letter. And I, also there was uh, a further follow-up letters about the interaction with linesmen. Um, and there was a Frank, Stuart McNeil had heard a Frank linesman at Altrincham, I think on the TV, where the Altrincham skipper was was remonstrating with him about a, an offside decision, I think. And the, and the linesman was heard to remark, I don't give a shit what you think. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's, the sort of, that's the sort of talk you need from the match officials. As mentioned, issue 406 of When Saturday Comes is out now. Andy, tell us about some of the contents in this issue. Uh, well, we've got a lot of obituaries this month. Uh, four in various parts of the magazine for Jim McLean, Gerard Ullier, Tommy Doherty and, and Paolo Rossi. And then Colin Bell, his death happened just as we're finishing the issue. So we'll, we'll cover for him uh, next month. Um, Jim McLean, I guess he could be said to sort of symbolise a, a vanished era more than more than any of the others. Really, a time when other clubs in Scotland outside the old firm could compete. I mean, Aberdeen and Alex Ferguson Hearts nearly won the league once. Mm. Um, I needed to draw in the last game and lost. And um, I suppose it's a time that will never come again. Really, I mean, the key to it being that Aberdeen and Dundee United then were able to keep a lot of their best players, although some did eventually go to England, but they didn't lose them to Rangers or Celtic now, which I suppose they, a, a competitive Scottish Premier League team just wouldn't be able to keep the players for any length of time, I don't think. The team spirit feature where we look at uh, two articles by supporters of a particular club um, is on Lincoln City. Uh, a team from, as Ian Plunderleith, one of the writers says, uh, England's second largest county looks at how the club's been revived in recent times, having gone out into non-league. And also, um, this season, aspiring to get back in the second division, they haven't been since the early 1960s, where they had a disastrous run after that and nearly ended up in the bottom of the fourth before being revived by Graham Taylor. Um, uh, we got a feature on uh, collectors of Corinthian figures. Um, one of them in Holland, one in the UK, have thousands of these figures on enormous displays. And uh, the man in Holland started off collecting fine old figures and branched out from there, says that his girlfriend after when he first met her had googled his name in advance and discovered that he was a corinthian obsessive and she told him when she first met she hoped he was there was someone else with the same name <laughs> but it was actually him and she's now uh, reconciled to it or she, I, I assume she is he says they've got two kids so i suppose it's, it's gone okay um we've got uh, harry's column this month um uh, about uh, buying uh, foreign newspapers which which he can mention and also a uh, match of the month dan uh, goes to scotland a uh, bottom of the table clash uh, watched by yourself yeah cowden beef and I was so pleased to write a match of the month. It's been one of my favourite features since I started reading When Saturday Comes and to go to one of my favourite grounds in Cowdenbeath and I wasn't disappointed apart from obviously the lack of fans but tremendously enjoyable. And Harry, tell us about that column. Well, it was uh, just before just before Christmas I went to Gran Canaria in an in a ill-advised attempt to get some sunshine possibly um, and I was in the news agent and I was faced with a choice between the only English newspaper, the Daily Mail. So instead I bought Marker. And I hadn't bought Marker for years and years. And I remembered it because they had these, they used to have these fantastic little cartoon drawings showing how that goals were scored, which I really liked. Anyway, they're not in it anymore. But but it was still a great experience looking at it. It took me back to the 1980s of buying the foreign uh, football press or the sports press, like mm-hmm. Gazetta della Sport and things like that. Although I don't speak any foreign languages. And I think, you know, as I say in the piece, it's a, a bit like when you're a traveller with an atlas, when you get a foreign language um, sports paper, it's like an armchair adventure in an exotic land, just looking through the, the league tables and the fixtures. And I think yeah, the, the, I mentioned a friend saying, what if there was a, a foreign equivalent of the non-league paper? And that friend was, of course, you, Dan. Um, and I do think that's just, I just think that would be, you know, that would be, if I got, if I had a, a few copies of those, I could get through this lockdown easily, albeit at the end, I'd be a bit like the man with the Corinthian collection. I, think. I really enjoyed Tom Lyon's piece about watching the latest update on the Class of 92 documentary, which I also watched over Christmas. There was two immense pieces of irony from Gary Neville in that. One, when he, he ruminated that sometimes he missed 
having the mound behind the goal and all the local characters coming to watch the match and what it used to be like, as if what had happened since had nothing to do with him whatsoever. (laughs) And then when he was looking for somewhere to build a training ground and he complained that all the green spaces in Manchester had been developed by property developers, which is tremendously ironic as well. I think he's probably being confused because those documentaries about Salford always trying to put, the ones that I saw always portrayed them as if they were one of the, the smallest club in Britain they were referred to as. Yeah. You know, it was like it's the fair. It's a fairy tale come true. Yeah, it's a tale of five multi-millionaires <laughs> buying their way to success. That's a, a quite an unusual fairy tale. I don't remember that in Brothers Grimm. As Tom points out in the piece, Roy Keane seems to turn up at most games, but doesn't have one of the ten percent investments that the rest of them have. Maybe they haven't told him he hasn't got a stake in the club. <laughs> There's one point where he's tremendously excited because they've got Bovril in their little executive box as well, which is an endearing <laughs> moment. I did, I did the, the, the Lincoln City feature, I particularly like that the, there was that lovely team photo of the Graham Taylor era team. And I noticed yes, the ones yeah. who'd been forced to kneel on that frozen pitch. <laughs> I'm quite sorry for them. I bet they were kneeling on that frozen pitch, and then the photographers go, just another one. Can it, or could you just, could it, you know, there'd be 20 minutes of kneeling on that frozen ground. Ooh, you could almost feel it. They're rubbing the hands at those. Have you had a work based accident in recent times adverts in the middle of the day, aren't they? I think there will be. <laughs> I've got a team line up knee. That's it. Also, like the in Colin McPherson's uh, photo feature on Congleton Town, the, the photo of the club shop and um, was decorated with a rather sinister-looking clown puppet for reasons I wasn't sure about. Just to psych out the visiting team. I think that's what that's certainly what it looked like. It looked like the sort of thing that the you know, Native Americans would have nailed onto trees. That display. I mean, should the visiting team visit the club shop in advance? Maybe maybe they don't really. There's also a spider suspended above some sort of teddy bear. So. Some rather strange-looking figures as well. They don't think they're. Corinthian figures. Unless there's Corinthian figures of, of that level of foot of Congleton. Congleton wasn't one of the places where there used to be witchcraft, was it? I don't know, it's terrible. I'm, I'm thinking of Pendle. Weren't the Bee Gees from near there? Yeah, yes, they were They were from um, several places. <laughs> there's a new documentary about the Bee Gees, I think actually probably inspired by our conversations about them. Yes, that would have triggered it, I think. That gave them the idea. And I think someone heard it and went, oh, Bee- the Bee Gees, they're a fascinating group of men. They're possibly from the Isle of Man or maybe... It, you no, know, it, it was cool. They originally, it was originally going to be called the Lads from Ashton and Underline. They had to change it to the Lads from Charlton Come Hardy, which I admit doesn't sound quite as good. <laughs> Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Carlton Fairweather, Swindon Supermarine, Sociable Turnstile Operators, and it's landed on Player Managers. Andy, what does that completely impulsive topic bring to mind for you? Uh, well, when Howard Kennedy first went to Everton as manager in 1981, he was actually player manager. He played four league games and a couple of cup types. This is in an era when there were a lot of player managers at the top level. John Toshak um, intermittently played for Swansea when the first division. Ken Daglish later, of course, player manager at Liverpool when they won the league. The last player manager to, to do so, I think. Um, Peter Reid, three years as player manager at Man City. And Brian Robson, I'm sure Harry will... We'll be able to say a lot more about at, at Middlesbrough. Uh, one thing I'd say about him, I do remember seeing a photo of, of him online from his Borough days, standing looking rather perplexed while holding a kettle in what looked like an office. And underneath, someone had commented, as if Brian Robson would drink anything that needed boiling first. <laughs> what they meant by that, I don't know. Um, have there been any player managers at the top level since Brian Robson? I, don't know. I, sh- I should look it up, really, but there's, but there's, uh, there's been a pandemic. I've had to look up stuff about vitamin D. I mean, I can't be expected to research everything. <laughs> Oh, there was um, Hoddle, Hullet and Viali, of course, at Chelsea. Yeah, Viali was the last player-manager in the Premier League in 1999. Well, there was also, um, not in the Premier League, um, Carlton Palmer had a fairly disastrous last few games as player-manager with Stockport when he subbed himself off in the first half at least once, having been responsible for goals scored by the opposition. Um, Whether he went on to be a full-time manager for a bit after that. Um, Peter Shilton, the arch enemy of Project Fear, um, played 34 games for Plymouth when he was manager then in the early 90s, made his debut for them when he was 42. And another goalkeeper manager, Jock Wallace of Barrett Rangers, when they beat Rangers, a team he later managed, famous Scottish Cup shock in 1967. Jock Wallace said to have um, eaten monkeys while doing national service in Malaya in the 50s. Did he mention, did he used to psych out opponents but corners by mentioning this? Do you think he'd say, you know, I'm not going to do the accent, but he'd say, you know, I just bit the monkey's head clean off like this and he kind of mime it. 
<laughs> no, well, the, the, the thought that comes to my mind is is the newspaper headline "My Boss is a Hooligan," um, which referred to which was uh, Jan Bartram's take on having Graham Souness as his uh, player manager at Rangers, because of course Souness arrived and was sent off after thirty four minutes of his debut in nineteen eighty six against Hibs. And I do remember that he kind of stormed off the field with this look of righteous fury on his face, as if he just defeated his wife's lover in unarmed combat. And he was sent off three times during his time as player-manager of Rangers. And, of course, then had a famous row with the St. Johnson tea lady, Aggie Moffat. So I don't know, as, as, as player-manager, if he's really the, the, the way that he behaved on the field, if he was really in a position to discipline, you know, to criticise the players for discipline on the field, I'm not really sure. But Andy mentioned Brian Robson. And, of course, in the in the true tradition of the uh, the player-manager, Brian Robson was often photographed wearing his, a full Borough kit and a sports coat over the top of it, as if to signal the two positions. A bit like one of those old musical acts where they were you know, divided down the middle, they'd be dressed as a woman on one half and a man on the other, and then they'd carry out a conversation between man and wife by turning at right angles to the audience, eventually becoming muddled with hilarious consequences. And I think that's what happened with Brian Robson, actually, during his time at Middlesbrough. And so there was a bit of a craze. He was part of a craze in the 1990s. There seemed to be a lot of player managers, um, Rudd Hullett, Viali, we mentioned Attila Lombardo, Peter Reid, Stuart Pearce, Glenn Hoddle. Graham Souness, he managed, I think he was, as a manager, he got a touchline ban, but he was able to circumvent it by picking himself as substitute. The confusion of roles. No, that's not me. A bit like, a bit like in people, very old readers will remember the Eric Sight show in which Derek Guiler as Corky, the policeman, who would put his hat on when he was speaking as a policeman and take it off when he was speaking as the next door neighbour. Which brings me to the question, do you think they tell themselves off? Well, do, do they accuse themselves of hiding, you think? You didn't want the ball, I saw you, all that kind of stuff. Or they have a conversation <laughs> where they they sit behind the desk and say, yeah, I'm going to give you one more chance, but you've got to show me a lot more than you did last week. And then they stand up and go around the other side of the desk and say, I won't let you down, boss. You know? If they're about to come off the bench, do they say to their assistant, do you know who could do a job for us here? And the assistant has to say, you could, like that, <laughs> and point to him. They'll be shouting themselves and bring your dinner. Because <laughs> David was similar when he was player manager of Barnet, which was fairly disastrous. I think in his, I think in his last eight games for Barnet, he was sent off three times. <laughs> Again, you know, it's not really an example to set the young lads. Mentioning the substitution thing, I've got a vague memory that when Mark Hately was Hull player manager, he would bring himself on for the last few minutes to get his win bonus. I don't know if that's a scurrilous rumour, but I seem to remember reading that. Why do you think it's become such a rare phenomenon then? Is it partly for one of the same reasons you get fewer older players dropping down the divisions? I think it's just tougher now physically. I mean, players are fitter and bigger and can get up and down the pitch more than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. So maybe it's tougher for someone in, say, their late 30s to keep up than it used Mm. to be, I think. Probably. We still see it quite a lot in in non-league football, don't you? I mean, it's quite a common thing still yeah. there. Where yeah, because often as well, the managers, even if they're quite old, they register as players in case they, you know, in case they have some massive injury crisis or lots of players leave. So that you know, that's it's quite common. Uh, Steve Bowie, who played, I think probably about he was probably I think he might have the the most appearances for Queen of the South. Certainly quite high up there. He's still he's still player manager in the Northern League and been at various teams. And he always brings himself on and then starts. You know, he's, he's one of those players who's always shouting a lot, exhorting. I think is the word for it. Is he shouting? It's Bowie, not Bowie. <laughs> Even though this is a completely random topic. I was thinking about player managers because the match of the month featured Michael Payton, wonderful player at that level of Scottish football, Brecon player manager. He was also captain and it made me wonder who's the most power hungry footballing figure you can think of. I'm not suggesting for one minute he is, I think. Well, I think there's, there's a quartet, isn't it really? Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Neil Warnock. <laughs> I think Rudd Hullett as well. You know, there was a great moment. I think I've mentioned it before when I think Jimmy Hill commentating on a, a the, the Dutch side came to Wembley and played very well against England. And there was a bit anyway, he said, Rudd Hullett, look, he heads the ball to himself. And he thought that was the ideal thing for Rudd Hullett. If he could have crossed the ball and then headed it into the net himself, a team made of 11 of himself would have been what he would have wanted to play for, I reckon. I don't base that on any knowledge of him as a person. I just, it's just the general feeling. I've also been thinking about joint managers, sort of deviation from the normal 
manager route as well. This is in my mind a bit because in Scotland each year they make a big thing that they give their gritters really witty names like Gritney Spears and Gritty Gritty Bang Bang. It's always one of those post-Christmas stories. But there's still to call one Steve Grit. Ah, yeah. Yes, Alan Kirbyshee's co-manager at Charlton for a bit. And... and they were both player managers. They were co-player managers, weren't they? Combining. He was manager of Brighton. But in between him leaving Charlton and becoming manager of Brighton, I saw him as a player at Tooting and Mitcham as well. So league player manager, then non-league player, then went back to being a manager. Kind of a strange uh, trajectory. And any other joint managers? Because that, that that seems to have completely disappeared, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, there's been some people we've had on the covers of WSC. Roy Evans and Gerard Ullier, briefly joint managers of Liverpool in uh, 1998, uh, on an issue where, yeah, it says Liverpool new double act, and it's a two-runnies catchphrase, good night for me, and it's good night from him. And I see on the cover of that issue, actually, one of the features we had inside is described as European Super League stupidity. So good job, that's a thing of the past. <laughs> 1998. Um, Evans had been sole manager for a bit. Julio was brought in and Evans resigned shortly after. I suppose it's a bit like one of those Ealing comedies, you know, with antiquated business model and new business analyst comes in with a, a set of slide rules and he's constantly making notes on the clipboard and changes everything. But in the comedy, the older ways of doing things would probably be salvaged, but not in this case. And Mr. Roy had to to lock up the famous boot room for the last time, then it was turned into a branch of Tyrac or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. Um, there's Peter Taylor and Steve McLaren, uh, caretaker joint managers of England, 1-0 defeat in Italy, which also WC covers after Kevin Keegan resigned before Sven took over. McLaren stayed on later as a coach. Um, Taylor, Peter Taylor, was um, he'd be described as a promising young manager to these about 57. I think. <laughs> he was briefly involved uh, under Sven as well when they went back to his job at Leicester. And there's also... Um, earlier in Kevin Keegan's career, Mohamed El Fayed appointed Keegan and Ray Wilkins, the management duo at Fulham. Wilkins was team manager, and Keegan was given the title of chief operating officer, kind of term from business. Might have been the first time that was used in football. I suppose it could just easily have said something like the, the click and collect overseer or something. <laughs> but, uh, Fulham lost to Grimsby in the third division playoff, and, and Wilkins left. Uh, or as, as they probably said in, at Fulham at the time, an, an exit strategy was devised for him. Harry, any joint managers? You know, Terry Venables was brought in at uh, Middlesbrough to, to sort of nursemaid Brian Robson a bit towards the end. Although Brian Robson had already been manager for about five years or something. Indeed, so it's a bit strange. So that was, a, that was an old combination. But I think as well, sometimes now, if you think we tend, I was thinking of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor, which now you kind of think of Clough and Taylor as a, but I don't recall, particularly in the 70s, you know, Clough was the manager and everyone knew who he was, whereas I don't think people really did know who Peter Taylor was. And now, obviously, his contribution is that knowledge, but I don't think at the time it particularly was, or it didn't seem to me anyway. There's a sort of often a kind of good cop, bad cop thing, if you think of Clough and Taylor, I think, or there's those two guys who are in the Salford documentary in the Chester City managers who were sort of bad cop and bad cop. <laughs> I think they didn't really work that out properly. Um, and of course, there were the two Swedes whose name at one, who were manager of the, the Swedish national team was managed by joint managers for a long time. One was Lagerback, and I now can't remember the name of the other one, which is helpful. Was he called Tommy Soderberg, something like that? Soderberg and Lagerback, yeah. It, yes. sounds, like a, it sounds like a Swedish equivalent of Starsky and Hutch. Or some sort of aperitif. <laughs> That's one or the other. It's always the same. Good theme. I think it would have had a good theme tune. <laughs> so it had to combine the Scandi theme tune, which is basically like Bjork, with the Starsky and Hutch or Kojak-style American cop show jazz. I think it'd be, that's a that's a music genre we should explore. I think sort of trip hop and uh, cop show jazz combined. I came across the joint manager thing in my Panini album '89 because both Aberdeen and Hearts at that time had joint managers, and I always used to feel sad that they had to share a sticker. I don't yeah. know if it ever it must have annoyed them. Just that little half sticker each. It was Alex Smith and Jockey Scott at Aberdeen, quite successful, and Alex McDonald and Sandy Jardine at Hearts, who were both also registered as players, so joint managers and player managers. I'll a picture of a fan now sadly cutting the sticker in half as they went their separate ways. A country western track playing in the background. It's the fanzine, not the programme. The fanzine, not the programme. One pound. The fanzine is not the programme. Fanzine's one pound. Fanzine's one pound. It's not the programme, it's the fanzine. Give the gift of a When Saturday Comes subscription in 2021 and the lucky recipient will be reminded of your generosity throughout the year. We'll even send a letter with the first issue complete with a message from you. Sign up now at shop.wsc.co.uk. One pound.
pound, one pound fanzine. It's not the program, it's the fanzine. One pound the fanzine, one pound the It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Uh, well, I've gone for Glory, Glory, Alleluia, about the Wuppertal SV. Yard is the VS Val. Yes, there it is, VS, uh, WSV. Um, 1973, it's their first season in the Bundesliga and they finished fourth, qualified for the UEFA Cup. They only had two more seasons uh, and got relegated 74-75, uh, only 12 points, though they did beat Bayern, which is uh, the second worst ever relegation season after Tasmania-Berlin, though, though Schalke may be, may be rivaling it this season. And they've never been back since, unfortunately. They've had some financial problems in recent times, but um, survived and are currently in the fourth division. Wuppertal, also um, the city with the world's oldest suspended railway, the Schweberbahn, opened in 1901, and also the birthplace of Friedrich Engels. That's not mentioned in the song. Perhaps they couldn't find a rhyme for it. Uh, famously, an elephant fell off the railway onto and crushed a car or something. There's a, there's a story about an elephant, someone having an elephant fall on top of them in Wuppertal. I'm, I'll have to look it up and find out more details for next time. It's not, it's not one of those magic realism stories. It might, it? It might be one of those urban legend, an yeah. urban myth. <laughs> Harry, what did you choose this time? 50 years ago today... Um, or not today, anyway, 50 years ago, 1971, Sporting Lockerans, Sporting, Sporting. And it celebrated the merger of Racing Club Lockeran and Standard Lockeran. Um, and I think the club folded last year, sadly. Lockeran's a little town about 15 minutes by train north of Ghent, where a lot of bike races start from, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. And the strange thing is when you walk from the station into the centre of town, you pass a lot of huge um, stainless steel sculptures of rabbits, um, which celebrate the fact that Lockeran, the main industry there, used to be scraping the fur off rabbit hides to turn into felt to make hats. I imagine that the opposition fans used to taunt them with chants of stand up if you scrape bunnies or something like that. But anyway, I don't know. Um, and the interesting thing with this, with this is that the, the team photo of this, Dan, there are two players who played for Lockeran at that time who played wearing glasses. Mm. One of them is Jeff Durian, who we've talked about before in our discussion of spectacle-wearing players, who was a, a really great midfield player, nicknamed Mr Europe uh, for some reason or other. But I don't know who the other player is. I did try and find out, but it is quite tricky because the team photos that I found didn't list the players in the photo. There wasn't like a t- there wasn't a list of the people at the bottom of the photo. If you see what I'm trying to say, I'm demonstrating with my hand, but that's what it's like me on the phone. choice this time is Gerardo Giniali with Il Darby, a great Italian record. I chose this for the sleeve alone. It's got a beautiful illustration of a football stadium. Giocatori, bene amini della folla, 
Oh, quanta gente in delirio a vedere il centroattacco se segna una rete, ma se la palla va sopra la porta, apri di cielo, son guai a non finir. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Billy Grant from Brentford's Besotted fanzine website and podcast. I'm Billy Grant and I'm the co-editor of Besotted myself and Dave Lane. I mean, Dave Lane actually started Besotted 30 plus years ago now as well. It started off as a fanzine. Um, It's funny at the time because Dave was actually, when he started the fanzine, I actually was running uh, an unofficial travel outfit called the Official Unofficial at Brentford. And I was basically, I was involved in basically organised travel for Quite, quite a large group of people. There's probably about 150, 200 people in our crew as well. We used to stand a particular side of the ground and, and, and Laney started up a sorted at the time. And I was mainly interested in just basically traveling, you know, to away games, organizing coaches, you know, organizing stop-offs in unusual places, what we did. I mean, it, it was quite funny. The coach was actually, at the time, it was the time when football was deemed um, as being really kind of quite horrible and nasty and football fans were nasty. And I just thought, this is, this is I'm not feeling that. So I said, tell you something, guys, I'm going to organise a coach. It's going to be the best coach. We've got a host who used to turn up in a sort of bow tie and a suit. You know, in the days that you, okay, you weren't allowed to drink on the coach, but they'd organise that. They'd sort you out with beer and everything like that, you know, and basically people would come on the coach and they'd pay, you know, they'd, they'd, pay, for the, they'd, they'd pay for the beer. I would take them on a route which is kind of like a back of the back of the houses route, you know. So instead of going straight to Birmingham, we probably go up the A40, go through Warwickshire, and end up at a 14th century pub in the middle of nowhere that I found in the good pub guide, and I'd rung up saying, "Hello, my name is Dominic Asquith, and I've got the the, the local shooting society who want to come down for a spot of lunch, you know." And then we turn up like you know, sort of 40 of us in this coach in this village town. They'd they'd be petrified to start off with. And by the end of it, like, you know, I'll be sitting there playing the piano and like the whole the whole village will be out sort of singing along sort of Brentford songs, like, you know, so with us in the pub. So it used to be a right laugh and it kind of got a little bit of a reputation for doing that. So I started off doing that. Laney was doing Besotted and then eventually Laney sort of kind of merged with us and we ended up becoming sort of kind of one. So it's kind of the official, unofficial and Besotted crew became the same. And then I started writing for Besotted and then we've just gone on from strength to strength, you know, writing podcasts, blogs, video blogs, the full Monty. So it's been a 30 years of uh, of interesting fun, can I say. And you often make friendships with supporters of other clubs. The reason you and I have met before is because of your friendship with Middlesbrough and the Middlesbrough fanzine Fly Me to the Moon. I, I love that ethos because that goes back to the fanzine ethos, doesn't it, of, of actually lots of us do get on all right, really. Yeah, I mean, even from back in the day, you know, I've always been into, you know, for me, football has been a, a way that you travel, you meet, go to other places, you meet other people. I mean, how many times that you say that, you know, how many mates of yours that you know that you've been to Scunthorpe or Wrexham? Like, you know, you know, my wife always says to me, she goes to me, you know, any time she wants to know anyway, she always asks me, you know, where is, you know, where is this place? And I say, oh, I know where it is. It's in the Northeast. She goes, because she knows that I've most likely been there for football. And I love the fact that, you know, football has taken you to these unusual places where you do meet, you know, some sort of kind of pe- different people who have different backgrounds. And those people might have a different thoughts than you in kind of music or stylistically or even sort of kind of, say, politically, you know, wherever you may be. But to me, that doesn't really matter because when it comes down to manners, you sit down, you respect other people's points of views and you sit down and you talk to them. And as long as you're, you're not being racist or being you know, overly violent or kind of, you know, or doing things that are overly wrong, I think you have to respect other people's opinions, you know, and just so so that's the score. So I think through football, you probably will notice more than most, you do get a real widespread of people mixing where if you were to say that by Jim and that guy, Fred and that woman, you know, Susie, would I actually have them around my house on a Saturday night? Probably not. But at football, kind of, you do. So, you know, our ethos has always been that. And even through the sort of the, the dark old ages where, you know, you found it difficult to, you know, when you went to away games, 
you know, you could never go and drink in the in the, in, in the local boozers when you went to away games because it was just a no-no. You, you, you never wore colours. But, you know, what we even used to do then, we still used to arrange sort of kind of meets with the opposition fans. But instead of doing it in the vicinity of the ground, you know, like with West Brom, we'd do it, you know, in the middle of the country somewhere. <laughs> and people might say, you know, if the, if the, if the newspaper's got hold of it, that, oh, yeah, they're, they're organising a meet. It's going to be a nightmare. And it's like, no, actually, we're organising a, 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 a safe place that we can actually kind of have a drink and just be social and civil amongst each other because that's what probably 99% of people want to do when they go to football. So, yeah, so that's been our ethos and, you know, and it's gone on to nowadays and, you know, I really do enjoy Preston North End. Every time we play Preston, first good fixture that comes up, we book our train tickets. The guys, we go up there, we get there at 10 o'clock in the morning, they meet us off the train, they take us to three, four, five, six pubs. We have a right laugh up there, you know, we stay afterwards behind, sometimes we might stay overnight and come down and they do exactly the same for us. So for me, listen, as I say, as long as the fans have got manners, they've got respect for you, I'm quite happy for them to come down to our boozer, we'll buy them a drink, they'll buy us a drink, we sit down and we'll chat, we'll go watch a match, fingers crossed, we'll we'll get the three points but then you know more often than not that doesn't happen that doesn't matter you come back and then you have a drink afterwards and you go about your business talking of on the field then i guess these are the very best of times you've known as a bee yeah they, i mean they are again i suppose it, and again i'm not trying to put these times down but if you're talking about on the pitch well there's no two ways about it we are the best team you know the best team that's been out there the best times we've had it the best football that's had it the the, the best organized that Brentford have ever been I mean they're, they're phenomenal at the moment now and you know and I'm not sort of trying to count for chickens but unless something goes really horribly wrong we you know within the next three years I'm sure that they're going to be a Premier League team and, and and you know you know as some people say you know careful what you ask for you know in a strange way that we want to go up there because everyone wants to sort of achieve to the highest but I'm also a little bit nervous about going up to the Premier League because it's a it's somewhere which is very different to what we're used to but you know coming back to about the best times of Brentford you have to remember I mean I've been supporting them for 40 odd years and I've been through some ups and some downs with Brentford you know for most of the time they've been in division the third tier and the fourth tier of the football league you know for, for most of the time in the third tier and we've been fairly average to rubbish it has to be said and not putting Brentford down when you're a team like that a team who basically doesn't you know we've lost what they've lost Every single nine playoffs or 10 playoffs it is now, I think we've lost every single one of them. We've been to, I think, five or six finals um, at Wembley or Cardiff. We've lost all of them. We're a team who just doesn't really achieve that much. So when you go to your football, it doesn't become about the football. So ever since I started going in the, in the early 80s, it was about kind of around the football and the football was a bit of an inconvenience almost, but you sort of revolved around the football. So you go to your away games. It was about the trip going up there. Then you go to the match. I mean, not being to, I mean, we went to Wrexham, you know, one time and we got up to Wrexham, probably got there about midday. It took us about five hours, four hours to get up there, got there at midday. We were in the pub and then we were still in the pub at 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, you know, and somebody, somebody in the pub reminded us saying, hold on a second, aren't you going to the game? We're like, oh no, we legged it down the game to sort of see Brentford score the final goal and win, like, you know, and then we went back to the pub and a few more drinks and then headed back for another five hours back to London. But we talk about that day for, for a long time because it was, we had such a laugh with the locals we had a, such a laugh on the way up and the way back and watching Brentford playing I think they're in the fourth tier at the time was kind of a little bit of a bit of an inconvenience you know so but I'm saying that with a lot of fondness because you know I've had some of our best away days going to to your scumforps of the world Bradford cities of the world and you know places like that I've had some brilliant brilliant laughs going there you know I've had some great fun in the championship as well so we're playing some great football now and the focus now because we're playing better football is more about, you know, how you're playing. And there's a greater expectation as well. You know, when we did lost last uh, season in the playoff final, there's a lot of people that are really, really upset. Yeah, I was upset, but I wasn't nearly as upset as I was when we lost to Huddersfield in 1994, the year when we finished second. And we should have gone up automatically, but because of the Premier League, you know, only one team went up automatically and we were, you know, by far the second best team that season mm. to Birmingham City, but we didn't go up and I was absolutely mortified that year. Again, it just really does depend on on, on these parameters. So I, I've got really fond memories of the old Brentford days, your Terry Hurlock days, your Chris Gamara days, your Dean Holdsworth days, your Richard Cadet days, you know, but big Bob Taylor, all those players who are fantastic for us. But I have to admit though, the football we're playing now, is pretty special and we're, we're very lucky and I'm very lucky to have seen the evolution 
of Brentford. And, you know, where will it go to next? We shall see. So we must talk about the wonderful Griffin Park. What are your own feelings about leaving and, and the consensus, if there is one among supporters, and what will you miss most about that magical little ground? Griffin Park, like I said to you, I've been going there for, you know, 40-odd years now. And I just remember it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant ground, you know, there's, there's a few fans that probably don't agree because, you know, they've got different barometers as to what they think is brilliant. But I love the old school feel about it. I love the fact that it's got terracing, which means that you can stand with your mates. You know, you know, you buy a season ticket, but you didn't have to coordinate in some sort of military fashion to be sort of kind of around the people that you like to go football with. You just buy your season ticket and then you all turn up on the day and you stand in the same spot. And to me, that is just the joy and the beauty. And the, the beauty about that is also is that if you decide to bring a mate, you know, you don't have to military fashion try to juggle them around. They can stand beside you as well. So I love that. Um, like I said to you, it's got an old school feel about it, you know, and and, and, and an atmosphere and it's really small and it's really tight. That, that'll be really missed. I mean, you know, us for years Brentford's better be moving they were meant to move to West International Market in Hayes um, Ron knows it's going to take us to Woking but there was a no to Woking campaign which was thank God that you know that didn't take place but as, as a fan especially kind of in the late 80s and the early 90s there was a this whole thing about new stadiums and you wanted if you had a new stadium you were like a cool football club and we were meant to get one but we, we didn't get a new stadium we stayed in our old stadium but then a lot of other clubs, you know, built new stadiums and moved out to new stadiums. And then when we visited those new stadiums, we thought, actually, this stadium isn't isn't as good as it's made out to be. And I think, in a way, I just thought, I'll tell you something, I'm actually quite pleased that I we haven't moved out of this stadium, which I was desperate to move out of, because that's what I thought you needed to do to kind of be, to, to put your flag in the sand and say, our club is fantastic, like, you know. Through years, I've met old friends there, hung out with old friends there, seen fantastic games there, you know, seen us lose to Liverpool in the in the League Cup, seen us beat Everton in the League Cup, you know, see us knock out Sunderland, fantastic in the FA Cup when DJ Campbell scored a brace, you know, seen us beat Manchester City, you know, in the in the, in the late 80s. Gary Blissett scoring a goal there as well in the, in the mud. The, the Man City fans turn up with all the inflatable bananas, you know, in the pouring rain and we ended up going on to, to to play Liverpool in the quarterfinals so I see some absolutely fantastic games and obviously the modern ones like you know Alan Judge scoring the penalty to put us up to, to get us into the championship you know so it's honestly you know the, the the memories that Griffin Park have been just 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 absolutely phenomenal just brilliant and even though I didn't want to move to be fair, Brentford did really well in, in holding us at Griffin Park because we were meant to move ages ago and uh, they kept on saying to the council, All right, you, you need to put some seats on those terraces now that you've gone up. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to be moving soon. So they managed to keep this, the ground as it was year after year for about another four or five years after we were meant to move and we stayed at that ground. And I think by the time we had to move, a lot of Brentford fans just realised this is time to go. But it was absolutely gutting when we came to the moment where we were meant to move you know it came to the last game at Griffin Park and we looked at it it was the Barnsley game of last season was going to be the last game all the plans were in place and uh, we played Sheffield Wednesday Uh, I remember my daughter who comes to to every game with me now she's only 12 years old and she's uh, comes to every single game she loves it absolutely but she was ill that day it was uh, a week into, into the pandemic the games previous week had been called off I think it was, or maybe the, the game the week before. I think, I can't remember what it was. But anyway, and she couldn't come to that game. And I went to see as we beat them 5-0. It was a, a fabulous game. And then I went home and my daughter said, I can't, I can't believe I didn't go today. I, I missed the final game at Griffin Park. And I went to her, no, nah, don't be so stupid. No, you haven't. No, there'll be more games at Griffin Park. And, and that was it. And she was right. She'd actually missed the final game at Griffin Park. And it was one of those ones where at the time, because you didn't know it was a final game at Griffin Park. You you kind of didn't, you couldn't really kind of celebrate it even. You know, we sort of saw the game, beat Sheffield Wednesday 5-0, then went home. But if we knew, you know, they said, right, this is the final game at Griffin Park, we could have gone full Monty and just did whatever we had to do and get on the pitch. And I, I don't know what we would have done, but that was it. And I have to admit, I was... Uh, I was in a denial because, you know, there was the lockdown that came and then we, we came back and the, the matches came back in in June, July, whatever it was. And I still believed that we would get back to Griffin Park for one more competitive match. So I, I failed to, to believe that it was ever going to happen. And uh, 
there was a light at the end of the tunnel for me the whole time. And eventually it came to the close season, August. And then in September, they said, we're going to be starting on our, our next season at New Griffin Park, as we call it, which is at Lionel Road. And I was gutted. I have to admit, I was really, really gutted. But at least I got down to Griffin Park outside it when we played Swansea. We beat them in the League Cup semi-final, second leg. And we were watching the game in, in the Globe, which is the pub down the road, which we watch all our, our matches. We've been watching all our matches during the lockdown and uh, it was properly lively in there. It's great. In the ex-players of Sam Saunders, Marcus Bean and a load of fans were in there, had a right laugh. And then we came down after the game. We walked down to New Griffin Park. We just stood outside there, you know, probably about four or 500 fans. Uh, we just basically just stood there and just sort of paid our, our kind of paid homage and uh, our respects to, to, to the old girl. And then we stood there and then the lights went off. And that was it, sort of a symbolic moment as we stood outside. It was quite a moment, it has to be said. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.